five, four, three, two. You're listening to Nags on the Road versus the podcast, and we're here to be the podcast and that's Welcome to another episode of Knives Monroe versus the podcast. I'm your host, Knives Monroe. How you guys doing? Hopefully you're doing well. With me today is her first podcast. I'm with my dear friend, Maddie Riley. Maddie, how you doing? Oh, I'm good, man. Pretty good. I'm super stoked to hear that. So, man, it's been a minute since we caught up. I remember driving to San Antonio and we talked on the phone for maybe like half an hour and I got to pick your brain. And I mean, if I'm not disclosing too much, I remember saying like, ah, I'm an introvert. Help me. How do I be social and stuff like that? And and you were really helpful. You were really helpful. But I want to say that was like last year and there's been a couple of apocalypses that have happened since yeah. then so yeah it, there's been a few you know decades that i've passed in between that no time shit, so no shit. so uh, <laughs> how, how you been and what, what have you been up to and i mean where do you want to start yeah man uh i've been pretty good uh i know you know that i've had really bad issues with chronic illness where i'll be like really healthy for you know months and then i'll get sick and um so it'll just kind of like crash down whatever i've been working on um that kind of happened at the end of last year but i finally got into a doctor who put me on medicine that is like the first time that it's been helpful in years and my brain has been working like much better than it has in years and so it's kind of a really weird time to come back to life honestly (laughs) like i would say that i started feeling like myself and like i could um keep up with reading and learning and educating myself pretty much exactly in March is like when I started writing and stuff again. So like, yeah, it's kind of like coming back to life during an apocalypse, which is, you know, it's its own adventure. Absolutely. So just to kind of fill in some of my, my listeners, uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, um, what, what is the, the diagnosis and how does it make you feel and how long have you been battling that? Yeah. So, um, I started getting sick and not, being able to get better whenever I was about 18. Um, I graduated from university in two and a half years, but I spent um, one of those semesters completely medically withdrawn and the rest of the time I was on disability. And pretty much everybody said that I was a moody, like coming of age woman. Um, The people who I was treated by were just like, you have really bad clinical depression, which is something that I totally definitely struggle with. I've always struggled with depression and anxiety. I'm a like total moody person, but I just knew that I was sick beyond that. Um, But it took me five years to get a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a hormonal issue that one in 10 women suffer with. And it's kind of on a spectrum of how badly it affects you for me. I was having insulin resistance that was happening. So a lot of my issues were from the fact that I wasn't getting the blood sugar that I needed. So whenever I would eat, I wouldn't feel nourished. 
and my brain would just literally like kind of go offline for a couple of days. I would have issues where I would be trying to speak, but I couldn't speak, which is called aphasia. Um, I had a couple of episodes where I passed out and fell down the stairs or I wasn't able to walk for a few days. Um, the symptoms got so intense that I finally got people to listen to me. <laughs> and so that was kind of all happening towards um, the middle of last year, the end of last year. Um, and I, at one point they thought I had MS and I got a like positive diagnosis of MS while they were doing the scans. Thankfully those came back and I didn't have MS. Um, and finally I went into an endocrinologist and right away I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so I've been on medicine for that. I'm on more medicine for that now to help with even additional symptoms. And honestly, it's been uh, transformative. I don't think anybody who has been well for most of their life, whether that is mentally, physically, um, understands what it's like to be limited by bad health. Um, and it was a lot of years for me where I felt like I wasn't in control of my own destiny because my body had control over who I got to be and what I got to do. And so um, I've been fighting really hard. I'm really lucky to have people in my life who are advocates for me that have said, no, she's not well, she's not getting better. We have to keep going to the doctor. There have been years where I didn't even want to go to the doctor at all because I was tired of hearing from particularly white men that I was making up my symptoms, that I was in this for attention, that I was lazy, you know, that it, it was a really, really hard way to start off being an adult. And I'm really lucky that I'm married to a guy who always believed me and that my family always believed me and helped me to get here. Wow. How many birthdays have you had? I'm 26. 26. And you've been battling this for, for years, it seems. Yeah, eight years. I, I mean, how many times my, have you gone to the doctor just to get a diagnosis or just to get a treatment? Um, I have been to 13 different specialists. Um, each of those was at least three appointments. Um, we average spending healthcare wise about $26,000 a year um, in trying to get me well and keep me well. So <laughs> I've been, it has been a, incredible investment in getting me well. Um, and for a long time, it was money that was not being spent with any results. So um, yeah, every time that I feel a little bit better, it's kind of a surreal feeling, so. And right now you're feeling okay? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'm on a medicine that makes me grumpy, um, which is, you know, just like one of the side effects that your body will get used to. So I just, I'm kind of a grumpy person anyway, so I just basically tell people like, listen, I'm I'm really grumpy today. Like you should probably communicate with me like as much as you need to and not more because I don't want to be mean to you. And I'm lucky that the people in my life are like, okay, that's fine. You know, that's something we can deal with. What are some in the past, you know, five or six years that you've been struggling with this? What are some some highlights and some and some low lights that you've had, uh, I'm sure you've hit bottom, you know, a few mm -hmm. times. I could, I mean, just with seasonal depression, I mean, I don't want to take my shoes off. I don't want to turn the <laughs> lights off. And that's, there's nothing biologically wrong with my ovaries, right, for example. Mm -hmm. So I can't really imagine um, being 
um, de- you know, what's the word? Um, just being, t- t- having my freedom taken away at the very least, right? Like that's a mind fuck. So what have been some of the lows and what have been some of the highs, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have a different perspective that's, that's unique that a lot of people maybe would take for granted or don't have the, the opportunity to have, you know, so what are some highs and lows for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that people kind of don't understand about chronic illness is that it's an intersectional, um, effect on your life. So like, not only was I sick, but I grew up in an evangelical household, which I left the church as an 18, 19 year old. Um, I started off as a very busy person. I worked two jobs in high school. I had three internships in college on top of being sick, on top of taking classes. Um, So all of this was happening at the same time. And so right around the time I was 21, 22, I, after school, I went and worked at Southwest Airlines. I had a one in 12,000 chance of getting the internship that I did. And I did. So I moved to Dallas. Um, from from where? There. From Austin. From Austin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I graduated from UT in 2014. I go to Dallas um, and I start working. And immediately I could tell that I was starting to get sick, that, um, you know, I almost feel like my body was kind of running on adrenaline, getting me through that last year of college. And whenever I started working full time, I just could tell that everything that I was doing was not enough. And so I worked Southwest and then I started another job where I had three promotions in a year. I was doing really great. Um, I was on a manager track. Everybody there loved me. Um, And then it just got to be too much. I was so afraid of being sick at work that in the morning I would dread it. You know, I would wake up every morning and I would absolutely dread having to go into work and, not because I didn't like what I did, but because I was so afraid to fail everybody around me by being too sick. And so I had a really terrible mental health breakdown at that point because me and my body were not on the same page and nobody had ever told me that that was a possibility. And so I went into treatment for outpatient mental health treatment for about six months. I had to quit this job that I'd worked so hard get into um you know every it kind of felt like all of the effort i had put into being this very successful communications professional and you know rising above everybody my age getting this job graduating early all of it was swept out from under me because i literally could not function anymore you know there was a lot of days during those months where i would just lay on the couch for 18 hours and sleep you know and there was probably about two years where that was kind of the normal, where I would sleep like 16 hours a day. And when I was up, I was going to group therapy because everybody was telling me that depression was the reason I was sleeping all the time, which is definitely a symptom of depression. I don't want to, you know, undermine that if that is how your depression shows itself. But that, you know, it wasn't what it was for me. Um, the first time I heard a doctor tell me that it was psychosomatic and I was making it up was whenever I lived in Dallas and that, I mean, it would, it really broke me. It really, really broke me because I felt like they must be right because they're the doctor and therefore they know everything. And so in my head, I was like, if I just keep trying a little bit harder, if I keep trying to work 
Um, so I would apply for a job and I would work there for like two months and they'd be like, you're a star, you're so good at this. And then I'd get sick again and I'd have to quit. And it was just this cycle of me trying to get back on that track that really, really, um, it hurt me psychologically more to be trying to do that rather than it would have, if I would have just accepted that, you know, chronic illness is a part of my life and built a life around that. So I think that like period of my early twenties, honestly, it feels like a blur whenever I look back at it because it was just survival mode. It was just, I am too smart to sleep this many hours a day. Therefore I have to do things that I don't feel physically capable of and are hurting me emotionally just to prove to the world that I am smart and beautiful and intelligent and it was so hard. It felt like yelling out into the darkness a lot of the time. Um, and we moved back to Austin. And I think whenever we moved back to Austin, I finally kind of had this moment where I was like, you know what? It has been three years at this point of me trying to um, get back on the treadmill that I jumped off of and it's not working. And, you know, I had been suicidal right after I had had to quit my job. And when I was in all of those mental health um, group therapy sessions, and I had basically said to myself and to my husband, like, okay, I don't want to check out. I'm here. So what does that mean? You know, like I need to figure out how to make my life long-term sustainable. And so that's whenever I started getting into acting and writing and to things that I could, um, express my creativity and my knowledge in a way that was cyclical project-based and for me that was a really big turning point because I was like oh I don't have to be healthy all of the time but when I am healthy now I finally have a place where I can feel like I belong I feel like I can create something that belongs to me and to the world and is putting this knowledge that I'm acquiring into a better place and helping me feel like I belong and I'm connected to people again man that's so rough I mean it's kind of like you for the whole you know when COVID hit and mm -hmm. they canceled South by Southwest and and sports and things like that mm -hmm. for the first couple of weeks I was having these weird apocalypse dreams <laughs> yeah and like the apocalypse was my fault it was it was strange you know um the past 400 days like the past year has been a strange one for me like i've been going through this strange existential and personal transition we can talk about that later if you want but mm -hmm. um yeah when, when the covid thing hit and everybody was in lockdown and they took all the toilet paper and and there was a there was a sort of um uh, every man for himself kind of tangible thing that was going on and i was having these nightmarish dreams that like the end of the world was my fault, but I took mm -hmm. glee in it in my dreams. It was like, haha, now you all know how it feels to be quarantined. Now you all know what it feels like to all the extroverts are now introverts. Haha. Mm -hmm. It was like a very yeah. perverse thing that my waking consciousness doesn't agree with. But um, mm -hmm. all that just to say, you know, it's like you've been on lockdown and quarantine for most of your adult life. Mm hmm. So yeah. did when COVID hit, and I don't want to make this like a COVID podcast, but just because I want to fill in, I really <laughs> no, it don't. it exists in the context, right? Of course. I mean, it does. But I, I mm -hmm. am curious, you know, like how, if at all, that that really affected your, your lifestyle or any momentum or 
you know, it's strange. It kind of got better when this thing hit. So that's a blessing. But mm -hmm. have you noticed, I mean, what's, what's changed for you in that regard? Yeah. I mean, for sure. It like knocked some wind out of my sails. I think anybody who's in, um, the creative industry depends on the people who are coming in for South by Southwest yeah. as networking, as even just like a restart to like any projects you're working on. For me, I was in South by Southwest last year. The first short film I ever did became a um, part of South by. And so I got to go as a filmmaker um, in 2019. And Super so- it was a really big deal for me. I met some really great connections that I didn't follow up on and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, and I had just signed with a new agency as an actor in December. And so I was finally, I think, convincing my agent that I'm like worth investing time in. And like, <laughs> um, you know, just so you know, if you're an actor and you sign with an agent, like, that doesn't really mean that he's going to fight for you. You have to convince them, he or she, that um, you're worth the investment of their time and you're going to book things. So I finally kind of gotten to that point and I was like, okay, I'm feeling better. I want to go out on more sets, even if it's just to go work for free. I want to be on film sets more often. I love being on a film set. You know, I've done assistant directing, I've done directing, I've done producing, I've done writing. And so... I was like, any way that I can be out there creating, I'm going to do it. And then like literally locked down the next week. <laughs> and so it definitely took the wind out of my sails. But I think um, comparatively, that's something that I know how to adapt to because there's been other times where like, you know, I opened my business last year. I did some production, uh, commercial production. And like a month after I opened my business, I got sick again and I had to give up my office and start working on projects that I could work from home from. So I think people who have dealt with chronic illness are just very adaptable in that way because yeah. we're used to outside forces dictating what we do. And so like quarantine to me was kind of an extension of, you know, daily life. I mean, I do, there are definitely things I thought were immediately jarring. I missed getting to go to sets. Um, I am very empathetic. And so other people's anxiety around quarantine made me very anxious for the first month to the point where like I was having panic attacks, even though, you know, we are okay. We're so lucky. Zach gets to work from home, my husband. Um, and so our income hasn't really been that interrupted. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a super big change to the daily life, but I think a lot of people all of a sudden were like, oh, dis disabled people spend all of their time by themselves. This really sucks. And we're like, yeah, it really sucks to be isolated from the world. Like, yeah. hey, welcome, you know. Yeah. Yeah, people had to see it from the other side for the first time. I know mm -hmm. some people who claim that nothing changed for them. Um, yeah. And that's cool. Good for them. It, In a way, nothing really changed for me either, I guess, you know. Um, yeah. My work schedule, I'm, I'm grateful that I was still able to keep my job as well. That's really cool. As a matter of fact, I've been working more um, since since this because my business pivoted more virtually. So that's oh, cool. cool. But, you know, I missed traveling kind of like you. Mm -hmm. um, the first like the week this happened, the day before South by got canceled, the day before Tom Hanks got it right. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just came back from Florida and I was like, 
happy and I just let myself be happy. And I was like, man, I'm going to let myself be happy for once. And then this kind of got locked down and all my trips were canceled um, from, you know, from then until now. And so I was just looking forward to like this kind of new lease. And at the same time, this is, this is very, um, this is like a privilege, you know? So Mm -hmm. um, there are people that lost their jobs or people that are, can't pay their mortgages. And so Mm -hmm. I can't really complain too much, but um, it was like a wake up call in a lot of ways um, just to see how people really respond to crisis and mm-hmm. how you respond to crisis, how, how one responds. And uh, it was illuminating. I learned a lot about myself and, you know, my son, um, who's 14, you know, I told him, he got kind of scared there for a minute. Like, you know, this is weird because they stopped going to school in early mm-hmm. March and then they, they never went back to school. And, uh, you know, I would check the, keep my fingers on the pulse of, of the people in my house and, I'm like, you okay? And yeah, he was fine. He's stoked. He doesn't got to go to school. You know, like it's, Mm -hmm. I had to remind myself that, okay, my kids aren't, aren't afraid of dying. So that's good. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants their children to be needlessly afraid of, of dying. Right. So Mm -hmm. it was scary there. It was scary there for a minute, but I kind of feel like we're past it. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I think some of the like initial panic goes away with more information coming in. And I think we're like, at this point saturated with information about covid and so it for me i think a lot of the like initial panic was that i felt like i needed to be reading everything that came in i needed to be like constantly like on top of it um and so it's just like inundating myself with all of this new information and the chaos of it and um i think you figure out a new normal and a month in you're like okay this is gonna last a while we're gonna figure out how we can do our day and so yeah we're i have a brother who's 15 and he came and stayed with us for part of that and that was something that was really like kind of crazy to me was that he was just like well i don't have to go to school so you know i'm chill whatever you know i mean he does get bored i think that's one thing is like uh, he just gets bored he like he gets tired of watching tv or playing video games or whatever and i'm like it's a cool time for people who love video games like i wish i wish i really cared about games and i could lose myself in a in a final fantasy or something i mean i don't i've never played Mm -hmm. a final fantasy but it's a good time for people who have i really wish i did too did you did you get a nintendo switch he has one yeah (laughs) and so we play like mario party and stuff at night um but yeah i really wish i liked video games too i just get this uh sense of like i'm wasting time i can't let myself just sit there and enjoy it yep um and so you know i my husband plays them and that's like the only thing he does to like be nice to himself and so i'm just like let him play if he ever gets to where he'll do it but i'm just like this is no, why I no envy idea. I envy like the uh, the Seth Rogans out there who are productive potheads. How do they yeah. do that? Like if yeah. I if, you know, and I'm not no. trying to you know make anybody feel bad. It's legal in half the country, but you know yeah. if, I, if I smoked pot, like I there's, I would just feel guilty and I would feel ashamed and I'd be like mm-hmm. I it's like an indulgence that I I couldn't uh, partake in. And video games, I have the same sort of anxiety with that. I feel like shouldn't mm-hmm. I be mowing the lawn? right now or something i can't get away with it but when you're 14 what yeah else, whatever what, what else you don't are you have, gonna do yeah no i like that is something that 
I distinctly remember like being a flip that switched whenever I was probably in college and I was around a lot more people was this like sense of if I'm not actively doing something to make the world a better place, then I'm wasting my time. And like, I, That's I a have lot to of stop pressure. myself all the time. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself right there. Oh yeah. I mean, it's something that I like, I think made a lot of the illness and stuff worse in was because my, my own inability to accept it because of that feeling. And I just like remember being a teenager and I was a really busy teenager. I played sports. I was in, like, I was working, blah, blah. But I remember any time that I got to sit down and chill, like I never had that sense of like, oh, I'm wasting time. It was like, oh yeah, it's nice just to sit here. You know, like it's nice to just relax. And there wasn't like guilt associated with that. And, I think that's something we get indoctrinated into as adults is that like we have to be um, constantly like bettering ourselves or our house or the people around us and like rest becomes this like very indulgent thing. Um, But I think in balance, you know, you just have to find ways to incorporate it into your life in a balanced way. Like, yes, if you are an active person and you spend like six hours on the couch, you're probably not going to feel really great. But if you spend that time doing something you enjoy and it's like two hours or however long it takes for you to feel rested, then that's positive. That's bringing something positive into the balance of your life and it's necessary, you know? And so, especially people like us who like constantly have thoughts going on all the time, anything that can disengage us from the maze that is our minds is very important because we get stuck in loops and we get stuck um, because the soundtrack of our brain can get chaotic and it can get to where it's like dominating everything that you want to do, you know? Yeah. It's part of our genius, but it's also, (laughs) it it could be tiresome for the people who live with us. I'd imagine. What What do you do nowadays now that you're feeling better um, to decompress? What do you do? during that spare time to to wind down to recharge your batteries what do you do yeah i mean i have a really hard time with it still i like reading but i especially right now have a really hard time not sitting and like educating myself in that time which i think is important but i have to get things that are just like very trashy like i recently binged all of true blood and uh-huh. I don't regret it at all. It was like the most restful few days yeah. I've had in a long time. And it's like, it's a TV show where I'm not analyzing if it's good. I'm not analyzing the writing. I'm not like trying to figure out what it means as a cultural right. statement. I'm just like, this is garbage that I love. I want to just like sip it with a straw, yep. you know? Yep. So for me, it has. I have to find those things that are, um, that kind of appeal to the, lower elements of my brain that can soothe me things like uh drawing sometimes but a lot of times i'm perfectionist about drawing so that can be tiresome but walking is something that even though my brain doesn't always shut off it just helps me the like actual physical act of walking i think can help us to clear through some like roadblocks in our brain that physical motion i think is really important and i do i run but i don't like running like jogging like constantly i have to do interval runs where i like run as fast as i can for a minute and then i walk for a minute and then i run and i walk and like that's the only way i can get out and do something like that where my brain is like completely occupied otherwise 
um, I feel like some forms of exercise, I get more in my head. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's mental, I think, mm -hmm. um, exercise. Like, if I'm doing an exercise with people and it's mm -hmm. one of those, okay, I look up at the clock and there's 35 more minutes and I'm dying. Um, <laughs> the, and you're really in your head. It becomes a mental yeah. thing. It becomes a mental thing for sure. I, I like, if I could walk two hours a day every day and not be accountable to anybody or responsible for anybody, I would do it. I try to do it. That the best time to do that for me is to is to wake up early. I used mm -hmm. to be the, the type of kid who never slept. I never slept up until like 25. Like I just didn't yep. I wasn't into it. Now as an adult, I love it. I'm all I'm all in on naps. I, I love sleep. <laughs> I'm I'm pro nap for sure. Yeah, um, me too. But I if I really want to squeeze in the walking, I got to do it early or I got to do it late when everybody clocks out and they don't care anymore, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But I found, I find that's like my meditation. It's, it's, yeah. it's so yeah. simple, you know, it's not super extraneous or anything, but that's when ideas hit me. That's when mm -hmm. I talk to myself or I talk to God, whichever, and, and cool ideas come and then I get motivated again and I get, I feel happy for a brief moment. And so, I, I, you know, typically just being on the couch, you know, me and my wife, we just finished uh, the Showtime series Homeland with Claire yes. Danes. It's so damn good. That was it's the way. It's so good. Did you, are you finished with it? Were you able to, are you pretty caught up? No, I didn't finish the last season. Dude, it's so good. It They, they stuck the landing. It's one of the best shows I've ever seen. Um, okay, good. But that was a fun one, you know. Um, and yeah, it is fun. We have to like microdose. Um, 90 day fiance before the 90 days <laughs> as well just just to balance it out you know um yeah but, but it helps the decompression just to just to let go and not worry about all the bullshit that you see on your phone right um yeah i gotta yeah. say like not to make this political but we can if you want yeah we can talk about whatever man i mean i want to hear about your existential musings from the last year too oh, but sure we could do that um <laughs> When 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 Donald Trump became president in 2000 and well, when he was elected in 2016, mm -hmm. um, from now until then, I don't think there's been one day that he's not the focal point of the news. Mm -hmm. People aren't um, up in arms about what he tweeted about. I think on Saturday he tweeted 200 times. Some, yep. Someone counted. He did. Yeah, that's insane. Um, and. I don't want to know about anybody's life that much. Mm -hmm. Like I, no mm -hmm. matter who you are, like Johnny Depp, Angelina Jolie, I don't want to know that much about you in that way, in that consumption way. Um, mm -hmm. And then like COVID hit and like it, everything was just that. That's yep. all. I mean, that's, uh -oh, yeah. that, that was all that was going on. And just right now, you know, these protests and these riots are, are all that's going on. And so, you know, this didn't really happen with COVID with me where I felt like I had to brush up on my education. I kind of just mm -hmm. let it, I kind of just read peripherally what was going on and tried to stay hygienic. But like with these protests, um, no pun intended, occupying the radio waves and, mm -hmm. and the internet, my phone, Twitter, um, it's been overwhelming. The discourse is, mm -hmm. uh, corrosive and like i can't i i remembered real quick why i don't participate in online discourse yeah um, because outside a forum like this 
it's pretty moot, you know, to try to have a conversation with some diplomacy about nuance that requires inflection. You can't have mm -hmm. that like an, on a message board. Um, so yeah. that, that's been something like, how do I distract myself from, and the internet used to be like my favorite distraction and now it's, <laughs> now it's absolutely yeah. not, you know? So the past, let's just say three weeks have been incendiary to say the least. And if you're comfortable about, comfortable about it, you know, um, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what's going on. I think we might agree about certain things, um, just from the posts that I've seen you, um, actively put out there online, but what are your, what are your thoughts? You know, where were you when, when you found out about George Floyd? Um, so I am actually like a pretty big news junkie. Um, just because I've always liked journalism. I grew up in a small town. And so like, I remember getting the times like on Sundays was all we got in New Mexico. And I would just like slurp that thing in. It was like a way to be connected to the world before really, um, online media related but and i actually went to school to be a journalist um i started out in journalism but because i was sick i just i couldn't keep up with the pace required of a journalist so i switched from communications all that to say i knew about george floyd pretty quickly because um the times covered it pretty much like right after that video came out and i'd been up on Ahmad arbery and i try in just in general stay pretty informed um i think for me what has changed a lot in the past three weeks is that people are talking about it um i do feel like a lot of people who were more aware of the anti-racist movement and more aware of systemic racism which i was exposed to um in college through some of the classes that i took could you elaborate think, on that exposed to what exactly in college? Yeah. So I, since I started out as journalism, I was actually in one class called African-Americans in sports where it was half of the class was journalists and half of the class were the black guys who played football at UT. And so, um, you know, I was there for conversations with them where one of the people who was the quarterback was told he was not allowed to take architecture and be in football. He was like forced to switch to a communications degree, something that would be easier for him. Um, you know, and I saw that a mm. lot. The black men, especially who were basically imported into the university and treated as goods and were not allowed to have their own opinions or to um, function outside of UT football or UT basketball. So I was exposed to that at that time, and that was very eye-opening for me. I did not go to a diverse school. I was not raised in a diverse town. I had never been around Black people, um, and I didn't have any negative, um, you know, stereotypes really about them except for those that I'd absorbed through media and things like that. Um, so I was honestly a pretty blank canvas when it came to race relations, and so... Um, I took that class and then I actually have a minor in sociology and um, part of what I focused on was um, the disparities in healthcare based on race and um, based on sex and basically just how um, your skin color and whether or not you identify as male or female can really um, dictate how you're treated in the healthcare system and dictate whether you are well 
um, you know, so I, the research and the kind of background was there for me, but the activism wasn't the like amount of people who were actively fighting that injustice. UT, I would say is a very, um, it's filled with a lot of researchers, but it's not filled with um, a lot of people who are like more liberal minded in those spaces, if that makes sense. Is that true? Well, I would have assumed I would have assumed they're, you know, just because I never went to college, really. I went to mm-hmm. community college, and I'll be honest, mm-hmm. I never even fucking went. Like, I just would, I'd wait out the clock in my car. Yeah. Like, I was a, I was a jerk. Um, so I never really got, like, into the debates, and I never, but, you know, you see online, and you see, for instance, Ben Shapiro walks to a college, and he has, like, security escorts. So mm-hmm. that, to me, puts this flag out there that, oh, wow, there must be this overwhelming um liberal voice at college i just i would assume so but in your experience there, is, there no. definitely is and what i mean more is in the classrooms if that makes sense like they weren't actively teaching activism. are you talking about uh, diversification in ideology or in in ethnicity no i mean in the classrooms i definitely i went out of my way to take for a bunch of different types of classes and um a bunch of different types of professors um so there definitely like was diversity in the types of professors and there was diversity in what was taught, but being in Texas, even as those educators were giving you the research, they weren't going that next step to say, so now email your congressman about this, or this is how we fight systemic racism. So you've yeah. got the background of systemic racism, but mm. weren't really taught anti-racism and what that looks like. Yeah. And so that was for me something I wasn't exposed to in college. Right. Um, it's something that I notice and I see and yeah. um but I mean it is my own failing that I never I saw those injustices but never said to myself, oh, what does that mean for me next? You know, what can I fix that? And I think it's a lot of my own pessimism that I've kind of internalized about the world that people don't care. No matter what I say, things are always going to be the same. You know, those loops you get running in your head. And I think that these past three weeks, if anything has drastically shifted for me, it's the idea that even if I'm not gonna change the world tomorrow, I, as a white person, I was a white passing person because I'm Latina. I have an obligation to try, you know, and Absolutely. the act of trying in and of itself is kind of the point. And for me, that never really clicked. That never really, um, I never really like felt like it was my story to tell. And it's not my story to tell. It's just that I have an audience of people that are unlike um other audiences and so like if i can even talk to one person that educates their family and helps them to be anti-racist then for me that's enough and i think Mm. the internet can be a really really hard place on people who are idealistic because they want to like every post they have to go viral and to just like change people's lives and they want to be like you know, these social justice warriors that are like getting into hearts and minds. And for most of the things that you're doing online, 
that's just not it's not realistic that's not what's going to happen totally. you know educate yourself try and educate others give people resources give them meetings to go to give them ways to become involved involved in anti-racism but if somebody doesn't want to be anti-racist if they're not ready to accept their part in systemic racism if they're not ready to accept that activism is a pluralistic endeavor then nothing you say is going to change that <laughs> and you think that so? for me is a hard line yeah. man well um, you opened up something i would love to talk about because mm -hmm. i myself am man i can recall this is anecdotal i can yeah. recall one of my buddies in my hometown which is south texas it's the rio grande valley mm -hmm. um they call it that because the rio grande river separates mexico and texas down there and i grew up in a population of like ten thousand people um mm -hmm. 99 spanish-speaking you know brown hispanic people yeah and um I remember one of my friends back in, let's see, I already had children, so it must have been 2015 or so. He he showed um, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon at the public library, and he had a screening there. A couple people went, and there was a there's a a woman who would totally identify herself as a as a feminist, mm -hmm. and um, she was um, Hispanic, of course, and a little darker skin than me, but still lighter on the mm -hmm. light side and uh, I boy do I hate talking about complexion um yeah. I just do because <laughs> because it you know it 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 I don't know I it's just well I'll explain why um and we started talking about filmmaking and we started talking about movie producing and she mm -hmm. was an aspiring writer and she wanted to write a movie and at the time she had said it's harder for her because she's a woman mm -hmm. and you know that may be true, but you know, I, at the time I, I was coming from this point of view, I had already produced a few movies. I told her, oh, gosh, what was her name? Oh, if Megan, her name was Megan. And you know, shout out to Megan if, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> she took a very combative defensive stance on feminism and, and gender equality and like job opportunities. Mm -hmm. And my stance, and we can break this down if you if you have any uh, you know feedback, constructive or otherwise. But at the time, I'm just trying to relay, I don't want to course correct this. This is just the, the conversation that was had. I told her, look, it wasn't easier for me just because I had a pair of testicles. Like, you know, the ten thousand hours that go into into um, educating yourself and learning about writing and the feedback and like all the failures, you know nobody was handing me opportunities i had to go self-finance and do my own thing and she this is the first time i ever heard this term she said that's easy for you to say you're 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 white you're white passing and mm -hmm. i'd never heard that term before and i i took offense to it because it didn't come from a place of of uh an inquisitive nature it came from like a really just judging me based on my optics and and that was that was strange because like i have so many female heroes in in writing but also in in art and i i, I i'm not going to say whether if it's harder or not but i had told her my skin pigmentation like didn't make it easier 
it didn't make it mm -hmm. easier. And that conversation was always a rock in my shoe. And, you know, cut to five years later, I, I can acquiesce to this notion that there, there is a lot of privilege that comes with this pigmentation in this country. Mm -hmm. And it might not, I don't think it's a um, one size fits all. I mark the, you could check mark everything, every opportunity I've had or, or haven't had. I don't think it's chalk it up to white privilege. I, I don't think that's fair. I really don't. Um, but I do intend on maximizing said privilege, male or white or otherwise, and, and you have to. When you said that you were white, parenthetically mm -hmm. white passing Latina mm -hmm. there's so much to unpack with that that we have our own issues that no one really talks about or I don't mm -hmm. I seldom hear and it's worth unpacking and where I came from I was exposed to racism at a very young age you know like mm -hmm. five or six not just in my family but in schools and in the outside I got picked on for looking this way and, and talking this way. English was my first language. I got picked mm -hmm. on, you know, and, and it was just so it was eye opening to me at a very young age that people would um, put me in a box, but they didn't even know who I was. Mm -hmm. and, and I honestly felt like, well, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. And I'd pray mm -hmm. to God like at seven years old, like, you know, they don't know better. They don't know better, you know. Um, and, and that's because I look like this. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, this is like a winning lottery ticket in, in, in this country, uh, in, especially in regards to being uh, stereotyped or being profiled by the police. I'll get a, I'll get a, I have a way more opportunities than anybody there for sure. Um, so that's something I wanted to talk about and just unpack right there because I recently took a, an ancestry, people on the podcast know this too, all too well, but I took an ancestry.com thing and I found out that I was 45 or so percent native, they say um, American, but it, it's, mm -hmm. it's um, my bloodline comes from Mexico. Once upon a time, it was all North America, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That and makes sense to me. And so that was there, but then the other half basically was, was, was European, was Spanish. Mm -hmm. And that explains the pigmentation part, I guess. Um, and then, you know, growing up in a in a Mexican-American culture where Selena is the Selena queen. Selena is queen. She's the queen. She's queen. Growing up in that culture, <laughs> you know, there's so much irony that Hispanics aren't going to call out such as Spanish. The language is a white language, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it it didn't like come from Mexico. And, and that's so, that's such an interesting space that like Hispanics don't really know. They don't really know mm -hmm. about. Um, and it's so strange, but that's, maybe that's a topic for another time. One thing I wanted to say about the past two or three weeks that I kind of learned, like I learned a new thing and that's, and this is in response to what you said. And I guess I kind of want to give you some pushback. I don't know if I, want to agree um but i don't believe if somebody comes from an anti-racist pov and they have their reasons um maybe that's a, a you know a propaganda thing or maybe that's a brainwashing thing or a culture thing or maybe it's just a um they're non-conformist or something and they're like black lives matter ha i don't you know 
I don't want to participate in that. Well, wherever it comes from, I do believe with exposure, education, and empathy that you can turn them. You can turn them to the light. I, I do believe that. I, 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 I truly, truly do. I just think people want it like instantaneously. Yeah. And, it, and it's a long, long game. It's not going to happen um, in, in Twitter threads. It's, it might mm -hmm. be impossible in Twitter threads. But I think if, if we are marching alongside each other or we're across each other like this mm -hmm. and there's respect there, mutual human dignity and respect there. And if so longer people aren't waiting to talk and they're listening, I think that is a great place to start for someone potentially broadening their perspective. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's like so much to unpack in what you talk about too. Take your time. Um, take your time. The first thing that like strikes me um, is that privilege exists in contexts, right? Like your privilege as a white person exists in the context of colonialism and the fact that we have been the ruling class um and have subjugated people and have developed laws and systems around the identity of white um and that that is the context that our country exists in i also grew up in a predominantly mexican slash white town so it was very much like those were the two races um my dad's from cuba uh but he was very americanized he came here whenever he was seven and his assimilation transition into um american culture was so hard on him that he didn't teach me spanish he didn't teach me about cuban mm -hmm. traditions he did not want that for me you yeah, know he didn't, he he didn't wanted... want to hold you back so to speak yep exactly yeah. he wanted me to be white he wanted me my mom is like blonde hair blue eyed like the most like whenever you think of a white person and so um that was how I was raised and but I remember you know my last my maiden name is Leona I remember being around Mexican kids my dad remarried into a Mexican family and they all spoke Spanish and they were very much a part of Mexican culture and I was very much the other in that context you know and I do remember feeling just you know devastated that I couldn't be a part of their club they didn't want me because I didn't look like them in that context I think what that shows is that that's human nature we it's not as a kid it's not something you're doing maliciously it's not a system you're creating it's just a um natural human reaction that we have to teach kids how to not do you know we have it is to taught be, would you agree with yeah. that yeah exactly it's like they learn it from their parents that they you know and it doesn't even have to be that they're actively learning from their parents, but they're not learning how to um, interact with people of other races and to be sensitive. And so, you know, I definitely experienced that, but I don't think necessarily that translates to later in life, whenever the context, especially of filmmaking, is primarily white males that have made the decisions for everybody, that have had access to the funds that get things made, that have been the ones who are speaking to the audiences, that are teaching people, you know. As a woman, I can name on my hand three women filmmakers in Austin that I would feel comfortable speaking to at all about anything, asking questions, um, you know, I've had really terrible interactions 
with a lot of the filmmakers in Austin's that are white males. Um, you know, I'm afraid of them. Like I am legitimately afraid whenever I walk into a room full of white male why, film, why filmmakers. Is, why is that? Why would you I've be had afraid? really bad interactions with them, um, you know, and um, I've felt very much um, like they run the room. And if I have wanted, you been without getting into specifics, have you been burned a few times by? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a pretty young actor who's you know once in on the business. I've like been propositioned uh, by people. I've mm. you know I'm I've been married since I was 21. You know, so yeah. my film career has always existed in the context of me being a married woman. Yeah, um, which I think has protected me sometimes. But um, yeah, I've been propositioned. I was like very close to being sexually assaulted once. And I am really lucky that I was able to get out of that situation, yeah. you know? And so I think a lot of the privilege that is inherent for men, especially men who are passing or white in that context is that they have a safe space to create and they have a place where they feel like they're valued mm -hmm. and I always feel like whatever I create has to be not only as good as what everybody else is making, but even better because I don't want anybody to say that this just got, you know, approved or like because it was made by a woman yep. or, you know. And so I think that it's like an automatic reaction that we want to have whenever somebody says oh that's a privilege like we want to be like no i worked really hard yeah i am like i deserve this you know and mm -hmm. that that can be true at the same time that privilege helped you you know yeah. robin d'angelo in um white for white fragility it's a really good book um she talks about how ignoring privilege or saying that privilege played a part in your life is not to ignore your difficulties it's just saying that that privilege was not one of them so like my experience exists in the context of my inherent privilege and my experience you know so course, like a black yeah. person who experienced the exact same thing as me would experience it differently because they are a black person even if everything else was the exact same Right. And so I think that is the context we have to look at privilege in is it's not a negative or a positive thing for you. Like it's not, nobody is trying to attack your character by saying that you have privilege. You know, and I, to, to be fair, sorry for interrupting. I, no, go ahead. I, you know, and, and I just want to correct a behavior that I'm just realizing is what you're talking about. Um, except it's a bad it's a bad behavior and that's I've done the same thing like with that woman what Megan did when she told me <laughs> at the time I took offense to it because I was like I didn't go to a company and make a pitch I mm -hmm. I I produce I put my own money on the line mm -hmm. you can do the same thing and so but what you're saying is true like it's in tandem my privileges mm -hmm. in perpetuity like they're there whether I'm aware of them or not they're there even if it's just like an entitlement an audacity mm -hmm. that comes with wanting to be a creator. You know, we live in a world where there's a, there's a, you know, I don't need to, I'm speaking to the choir. Like there's a dominant male audacity that that's just prevalent everywhere. But mm -hmm. I know I've, I've othered people and I've kind of done something very similar <laughs> with people who have two parents. 
Mm-hmm. For someone that has a mom and a dad, I'm like, well, easy for you to say. Yeah. You know, you grew up rich. You had two and you had a two income house. You know, because I yeah. grew up in a trailer or whatever with just a mom. And so mm-hmm. I've done the same thing, and that's not productive. Like to to try mm-hmm. to knock somebody down a peg with a with a privilege, because you know these, you know, being white, having two parents, like, uh, you know, I, I didn't make that happen. I didn't ask mm-hmm. to be this pigment and uh, people who have a mom and a dad, like necessarily that's not their fault, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you're talking about, I just wanted to highlight that note. No, it's, it's, it's true. It, it, it's there. And yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it needs to be a part of the conversation just like anything else, just like, yeah. just like, you know, if someone wants to be in a basketball team, their height matters. You know, mm-hmm. their strength and their the, the amount of hours they put into the gym or whatever, like it matters. That's part of the conversation. It's the same thing with filmmaking. Like some people are born on on third and a half base. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people, especially with filmmaking and big films, things that people see, don't understand that the majority of movies that people are watching are made by legacies, people who were born into film or by people who because they were film industry adjacent, their parents were lawyers or filmmakers, or you know they were um, distributors, things like that. They had access to rooms that people all over the country don't have access to. You yeah. know, like yeah. that access to people who are decision makers is part of what privilege in filmmaking is you know what i mean that it's like um you know especially like actors and things like that if you look at most of the actors who are part of our like public lexicon their parents were actors or their parents were directors their parents were producers so the idea that you're like supposed to work extra hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and that whole bootstrap narrative is definitely something i think that is a storyline people who are really privileged or really lucky or were born into the right circles tell other people to like ignore their own access and the own their things that they were born into whether they mean you know? to or not the ignoring part exactly they might not just like what you're saying they might not just have the they're just not illuminated, right? They might, they mm-hmm. just might not have had the luxury of being, um, I'm sorry, my, my shit's blowing up here. It's distracting me. They might not <laughs> just have the luxury of being enlightened. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, um, I, one of the, so I like long form essays that I don't think anybody will read or like very few people. Do do it in spoken word, create a podcast. I want to hear it, write it in blog form, everything. I want to hear it. That's a lie. Don't say that. I, so long form essay for me is a place where, um, you know, I think just because my background in journalism, it's a place where I feel comfortable and I can like, by by the way, let me just say your writing is exceptional. Thank you. (laughs) You you actually managed to write down. It's like it, you, you actually managed to get the work done is my point. You know, like I think, man, it'd be cool to really write this thing. And, you know, yeah, you know, a thousand words. And, you know, I think it'd be really cool. And then I would present it like this. And then I kind of just get the instant gratification of, 
of getting of telling other people about the idea that I never actually have a final product. Mm -hmm. You have so much writing experience. It's all out there. People need to check it out. And the fact that you're able to commit from your mind to the word on the page like that. Honestly, there's so many people that throw I'm a writer and they're really not because they don't do that. <laughs> they kind of just keep yeah. it in the head. You actually put it, you know, on the page. And so I just wanted to highlight that. Um, I will say that it shouldn't exist in a vacuum, Maddie. It shouldn't exist <laughs> in a vacuum. Share that stuff. Share yeah. it. Share it because uh, th the world deserves to read it and to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I definitely put it on my website and, you know, I put it out on social media, but I'm not, I don't actively try and promote myself a lot of the times. And that's, you know, not something, uh, I mean, just like a tiny snippet of my evangelical background, but I very much was told that I needed to be a lot smaller as a person than I was. Um, and so I think I've internalized a lot of that idea that if I promote my work, I'm trying to be a show off, I'm trying to be a know-it-all, you know, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of like, especially smart women get told their entire lives growing up, stop being a know-it-all, stop hogging the conversation, stop, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and so I think that, how do we unlearn that Maddie? How would you tell your daughter? Like, how would you, you, I'm sure you'd program her way differently mm -hmm. so you wouldn't even have to unprogram that but mm -hmm. what how do we how do we demystify that how do we eradicate that how do we what advice would you give to someone to say no 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 be as loud as you want be a bright color yeah i think for me um the advice i would give is that if it is your story and it's authentic to you and you are writing it from your point of view then it deserves to be shared you know it for me like that is the only way that um, I can put myself out there is if I'm not trying to be somebody else when I'm writing something, I'm writing kind of to myself, I'm an external processor. So a lot of the times when I'm writing these things, it's a way for me to collect mm -hmm. all of these thoughts yep. into an essay. And I like, obviously that first draft, I go back and I like edit the hell out of it. But being a part of your own story and communicating that to other people and actively engaging with yourself. Yeah. I think that's the way that real writing comes out. Real change comes out is because we're like taking these ideas and contextualizing them into our own lives. And that's what makes our voices unique. And so for me, like if I ever have a daughter, what I will tell to her is like, learn this shit and learn how it applies to you. And then that's your story. Like nobody else yep. can say that, you know, nobody else can do what you do. Well said. So you brought up your essays for a reason. I don't want to lose that tangent. What was I going to say? Oh, I, maybe we were talking about privilege. Yes. Um, we were talking. So one of the essays I wrote was to all the white people in my life who feel attacked right now. Mm. Like, tell me, tell I, me about that. I'm, Cause I'm one of them. I mean, I don't feel attacked, but <laughs> yeah. I do know people that, that do. Yeah. No, I, my point is I get it. I like get <laughs> why you feel attacked. Like why, why you, do they feel attacked? Most of them never learned about systemic racism, racism in school. Like if they didn't go to a college, they definitely didn't. You know, most people were not educated on this or confronted with this, especially if they grew up in a primarily white community. Um, 
and in their churches in their homes you know they've never been forced into context but that is white supremacy at work that the fact that they've never had to confront racism they've never had to confront the reality for black people in america is white supremacy it is creating a framework in which the people who benefit from the system are never confronted with the oppression of the minority that means that if you've never had to think about this that it's understandable but now nobody can escape it because it it's here it's in your face you know so i understand why all of a sudden this feels new this makes us feel like mm-hmm that like icky feeling we get inside whenever we really want to do something and you know posting a black square or you know just saying black lives matter is like this immediate release for us we're like yes like i've done something i've fought racism you know like i get those feelings it's just what do we do now you know like we've looked at that and now that you understand it that you've been confronted with it we have control of those boardrooms. We have control of those systems that are oppressing people. And so in order for us to truly move to a place where we're acting from an anti-racist framework, we have to be listening to the most oppressed because now we've been exposed to their voices. Now we know they're there. So we have to start listening to those people and the people who are most affected in those communities and apply those apply that information, hire those people to be part of our rooms. And that is what creates the new context for us, you know? Absolutely. You know, I've been internally, not internally, I mean, in my close proximity with some people who, you know, spend too much time. Okay, so there is a vocal perspective out there that, the term black lives matter is inherently racist Mm -hmm. because all lives should matter maddie all of our lives you saying black lives matter that's the equivalent and i'm being facetious here but i'm just trying to speak for their pov um you, you mentioned white supremacy what about black supremacy black lives matter is black supremacy right and people connect all these dots and i've been in these conversations where they're too busy calling me a libtard or something mm-hmm. that I can't even let them lay out their framework on how they perceive the world um, because they care more about being right than they do what's right. I mm-hmm. found in my experience. What is your, you know, what is your response to to people who say all lives matter, Black Lives Matter is is racist? Yeah, I think that. Um you said it really well on a video that you were posting when you were talking about endangered species and um, how like we can't focus on all animals with the same intensity in our news coverage and things like that. Um, So we have to focus on the ones that are in danger at times when we're capable of changing the things that are, are putting them in danger. For me, there's a really good comic that's going around and I just cannot think of who illustrated it. If somebody knows it, um, feel free to share that. But it has a guy who's standing in front of two houses, one that's not on fire and one that is on fire. And he has the hose and the guy's like, "Um, well, are you going to spray that house that's on fire? And he's like, well, 
all houses matter. And the guy's like, but this house is on fire. Will you spray it? And he's like, are you saying that my house doesn't matter? I have rot. And he's like, but that house is on fire. To me, that mentality is has to be carried all the way through to black people are dying. They're dying. They're afraid of the police. They're afraid of the people who are supposed to be protecting them. And we right now as a nation have ears that are listening and hearts that are open to the idea of change. So we have a responsibility as people with voices to lift up black lives right now, you know? And so for me, it's not a political thing. It's not a libtard agenda, you know, that is, it's just an act of compassion to focus on the people who need our help right now. And so, um, I think that happens a lot more by listening, which is not something that we're very good at doing because we've like been taught instant gratification, you know, Mm -hmm. like we have so many instances of instant gratification in our lives that listening to activists, listening to black leaders seems like a passive way of doing things, but you have so much unlearning to do. Your whole life has been taught from a framework that systemic racism either doesn't exist or isn't a problem. So how are we expecting all of these white people to wake up tomorrow and accept that real big systemic change has to happen? You know, it has to start by listening um, to people who are experts on it. And I'm not an expert on it. You know, I'm an expert on how I feel and how, you know, the world around me is affecting me. So when I speak to the white people in my life, it's with the hope and the intention that by being a white person modeling this behavior, other people will try to open up their minds, you know? And I, especially with like, when I said earlier that you can't change the mind of somebody who doesn't want to be changed, that argument where people are just wanting to be right, that to me is the perfect example of that. Because if you ask them to lay out their arguments, they wouldn't have one. They don't have one. They don't have reasons they believe this. You know, that's not why they're fighting right now. They're fighting out of a place of anger. They're fighting out of a place where they feel marginalized for maybe the first time in their entire life. But anti-racism means not only that Black Lives Matter, but that white people have to give up the power we've held over Black people. And that is a terrifying thing for people who have benefited from the system and who have power from the system that's currently in place. Yeah, I think where things get hairy for people, and I'm specifically pointing my Sauron eye on like Twitter, public discourse, or Instagram, Mm -hmm. or Facebook, or whatever, like internet interaction, is when we say even just something like white people is charged, or black people is charged, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people that are anti-Black Lives Matter, um, which Mm -hmm. is strange that like racism is even that there's even <laughs> some like okay sure yeah right. the fact that you want to go up against that and rationalize it in any way is strange but people that are anti black lives matter essentially um you know they will point to a Candace Owens or some some mm-hmm. other black figure black voice and say look this one person says that therefore and it's like mm-hmm. well it, it, you know that's that's this thing gets complicated is because when we say white people it's really more of like this abstraction it's like white consciousness and that's charged right it's like if i were to say something about uh trans people um Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard for it's kind of hard to 
to pinpoint it down on something general because there are there are great white people out there there's probably upstanding white police officers out there too um there's probably black racist police officers out there too yeah um so it's hard when we speak in bite-sized generalizations to convey something that is far more uh, difficult to explain and com complex and people I've noticed um, will be asking like loaded questions to 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 get you to be like aha yeah. I trapped you there gotcha. yeah therefore your converse you know and it's interesting like this past 20 days or so has mm -hmm. has taught me that like if you want a fact and you don't know it it's okay to say i don't know yes um, absolutely. and it's also okay to point to google and say let's find out mm -hmm. people expect like if i'm gonna have an argument with you maddie people expect mm -hmm. you to be the fact checker fact machine show me the evidence and it's just like let's just go look for the evidence together but we both have to acknowledge the evidence right and then yeah. the, and then there's a separate conversation just of opinions and that's something that i i have a forum I have um, a, a podcast, you know, for example, where I can highlight someone from a different perspective. Um, and I, I do that cautiously and I try to do it responsibly. Um, but at the same time, like I'm not outside of this world, I'm not really invested in trying to prove my opinions correct to other people and mm -hmm. trying to change minds. I truly just believe in let's sit down across from each other. Let's have mutual respect for one another. Tell me your story. I'll tell you my story. We're gonna probably find out that we're, we have a lot more in common than we do differences. And I think our commonalities are beautiful and they connect us in ways that your Twitter avatar and my Twitter avatar and our bios probably w never could, right? Um, yeah. That's one thing that's been a, a learning curve for me is oh i don't want to engage in in um i don't want to engage in semantics i'll give you an example this and i haven't put this on a podcast yet um somebody posted on facebook saying your president is when trump said um when the looting starts the shooting starts or whatever yeah and that yeah. was obviously triggering for a lot of people myself included and this woman on facebook posted you see what your president said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I really resented, um, just like, a like a Twitch, like a spasm. My, my, um, involuntary response was just to be like, you, don't say he's my president. He's your president too. He's mm -hmm. our president, whether we like it or not, whether if you voted for him or not. And so I made the mistake in writing on her post you mean our president and i got cannibalized like ripped apart <laughs> like no, if you've I ever mean... seen, if you've ever seen a zombie movie where someone's head gets pulled off of their body you could see my yeah. vocal cords be like Wah. it was just and after a while i was like i regret saying anything um yeah. you know and she called me a white supremacist she said go back and join the kkk and i was like oh no now it's about this and so now I'm yeah. making your post about me. And I was like, wow. And I, you know, I, I felt bad while that was happening. Cause there must've been a 100 comments just being replied to me being mm -hmm. a literal nitpicker stickler about, don't you mean our, like, you know, I got picked on 
and I did it to myself. And I was like, Knives, you're too, you're, I'm too adult to like, why was that the hill I wanted to die for? Yeah. And I was it. Why, like, why do you think you did it? I know why. And that's, I overestimated, I overestimated, um, there was sort of a assumption I had made that this person surely knows my intent and I overestimated that I was you know cool like that with that person that she'd get it you know if I maybe had that if I maybe did that on on your post I think you'd be like uh yeah duh knives literally I know but what I meant you know what I mean knives and it could have just been like swept under the rug and it would have been nothing and that's what I meant um there is a sort of, and I don't like this. I don't care what side anybody's on. There is a sort of like moral high ground that people mm-hmm. take of like, he's your president. He's not my president. And I yeah. understand that notion. I, I truly do. But, but there is like an ownership and an accountability that is a, a teachable moment here. So like a hashtag, this doesn't happen again sort of thing can take place. So let's own that. Look, we let this happen. Let's all just own that. I think that's more productive than saying he's your president, not mine, even though it's facetious. But boy, I'm telling you, I got crucified in those comments. I got crucified. And uh, I I get it. If I was somebody who didn't know you, I would probably crucify you, dude. I'd probably be like, no, man. But you know what? And I would probably do the same if I, yeah, I would have did the same thing probably. Yeah. You know, I, I like definitely think that there is a (laughs) certain um certain amount of you're asking for it by what you put out there right and so you know i think it's like an unwritten internet rule yeah exactly like you came into the kitchen sorry dude like i you know and i think that uh that's one thing that i'm like really really careful about with like when I respond to people is that I try really hard to contextualize whatever they're saying. And I never say, well, you're wrong. Right. I try and say like, why do you think that? Like, what is that? Because I think a lot of the time people are just mimics. They have whatever news outlet they're taking in, whatever, you know, home life they grew up in. They, they've never thought about why they think something. I think that's true for like most like really strong opinions on people um because if you've educated yourself then you understand that a lot of things are nuanced you can come to a like really firm opinion but if you've never even tried to understand the other side then you're gonna be a lot more defensive and a lot more like this is the right way you know yeah i think that is very true of people who believe in colorblindness yeah um because I think colorblind is like such a nice thing to say. Like yeah. we live in like my kids are colorblind. They don't see race, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, yeah they do. You know, like we are different colors, you know, and race yeah. is a social construct. That's something that a lot of people use as like a, like, this is why we're colorblind. We made up race, like race is not real. So how can we say that, you know, black lives matter more whenever race isn't real? Like you have to choose one. But the reality is, is that, being colorblind would only matter if we existed in a colorblind society. And obviously we do not because it is more likely for black men to be killed by police, which means that race is a part of 
the formula. It's more likely for black women to die in childbirth. Race is a part of the formula. It's 15 to 19 times more likely for a black kid from the age of 15 to 19 to get shot by the police. Like race is a part of the context, you know? And so being colorblind is a sidestep, you know? And it's one of those things where like people can get into the semantics of it. But if you just ask them like, what good is that argument doing? What are you trying to accomplish by saying that? A lot of the times, one, I've like never had somebody respond to that. I would love for somebody like to respond to that because I feel like I like get into these debates like hoping that somebody's gonna like answer me and I can like talk through with them. But I keep like thinking of these really like informed opinions whenever I respond to them. I put a lot of time in it. I have a rule where if I see something, I wait 30 minutes before I comment because I can be a hothead. So I try and like let everything settle. But yeah, I haven't had people responding back. And so you know, that's something I love. <laughs> One thing I've learned in the past 10 days is I- I've always known racists are real. I've always known that mm-hmm. it's indisputable. Like it's clear as crystal to me, mm-hmm. but now I can't like just write them off and dismiss them. Yeah. Like you have yeah. to hold them accountable and you have yeah. to do it in a mature, uh, empathetic respectable way though they're still they're still people that require the same level of decency as someone that believes that they're a jedi or something abstract like that you know they still need to be talked to uh at the same level not necessarily condescended to um in a strange way like it's a it's a i have felt like a lifeguard who wants to I see somebody drowning and they're like, all lives matter. And they're trying to be like, you know, they're, they're trying to yeah. fight for relevance or something. Um, and it's like, the thing is these people can drown, make you drown with them. You know, they mm-hmm. can, that's so it's scary. And you and I, people like us who are hyper self-aware, it's mm-hmm. our responsibility to cautiously, respectfully, engage with these people it's not as fun or as comfortable as speaking to people that agree with us no or we can feel good about ourselves and know that yeah we all donated collectively we donated a thousand dollars and we feel good about ourselves we did something but Mm -hmm. i feel really good about myself for real for real when i'm talking to a racist and and they're confounded and they see the hypocrisy and what they're talking about and they they're a little embarrassed boy does that get my blood going there you know not in a holier than now arrogant kind of way but just in a that's progress kind of way and so that's hard and i i have to it's exhausting as you know where our energy we know where the pockets and where all our energy is going at all times and so we have to choose it wisely but if martin luther king you know can hug a cop or you know at least look at someone as an equal you know we owe it to ourselves not to write them off you know Mm -hmm. not necessarily to give them a platform to spew vitriol no by no means but we also have to treat these people as people and see what we can do to plant a seed in them that maybe can take root 10 years down the line like that's that's the thing you know um 
when the George Floyd, when I saw that video and I saw black people that I look up to, entertainers, be like, ah, oh, man, this shit ain't going away in my lifetime. That made me really sad. I don't want yeah. that to be true. It might be true, but I ain't going to act like it's just going to be that way. Like we have to, I'll, t I'll save one person. If I can save one racist, then I'm, <laughs> what, I mean, I'll, yeah. I, I'll feel okay about that, you know? Yeah, I get that, man. I mean, I think there's a lot of hope involved in that kind of um, mentality, right? I think people really, really, really need to understand that racism exists outside of a moral framework. Um, you can be a good person and a racist because you have never learned about it, whether that is your fault or it is the fault of the people who have educated you and raised you. Um, you know, racism, especially systemic racism, does not require that we are not nice people. It exists expressly so that nice people have a hard time changing things it exists expressly so that oppression can exist without anybody trying to stop it you know and so i think being able to explain to somebody that i don't hate them i just want the world to be a safer place for everybody so i want them to understand this and i want them to know about it for me like that's an act of care and compassion and you know i think at some point we have to hold people accountable for their behaviors. I'm not saying that for the rest of their lives, we just get to say like, oh, he's a little racist, but he's a nice guy. Yeah. No, I'm saying like, we have to say like, okay, you are racist. Let's address why that is true. And like, how can we actively um, combat that? And they're like, that is work that I'm doing on myself too, because that is something that is going to be constant. Uh, you know, I, yeah definitely like have this filter in my head now where I'm like wow that was <clears throat> racist like why do I think that you know and as soon yeah. as I ask my question uh, question to myself I'm like oh I, it's racist I have no reason for it you know yeah and so I think about that myself you know I'll hold myself under the same microscope like I'll be singing a Kendrick Lamar song you know and I'm screaming the n-word in my car and I'm mm -hmm. like do I want my kids repeating this no what the what the fuck yeah. am I doing yeah. what am I doing you know yeah. um that it's yeah. it's yeah it's policing yourself it's you're tr i'm trying you know i'm trying i don't think mm -hmm. it's cool it's not my hill to die on you know um but it's something in little you know if we can better ourselves every single day that's the best thing we can do is try to leave this place better than we found it i'm yeah. i'm trying and I, mm -hmm. you know and i'm trying to do it without telling people you're putting them in a box and say here's what i think you are and that's all you are mm -hmm. you know yeah. wake up sheeple i'm just not about that i've never been about that it's just so just, it's, it's not a good yeah. look for me it's not a look that like creates positive dialogue where things happen i mean my background is in communication studies specifically human relations and so like i've written tons of papers on the fact that people don't listen whenever you start from a place where you think they're incapable of change because yeah. why would they listen to you at that point Absolutely. you know and so yeah. i think you know, I think owning that we're not perfect people, that this is something that, you know, we as a society let happen. This is something that we ignored. This is something that um, really only came onto the public conscience once white people started putting it onto the public conscience. Like, we have to own all of that. We have to own that that's the context that this work gets done in. And, um, you know, I think that not forcing people or not forcing black people to teach you, but being willing to listen 
is um you know part of where that starts and it's like the daily changes especially for people like you who have kids like I've never thought really about having kids before, but now I like want to have a fleet of little like non-racist kids, you know, <laughs> and just because I want the world to be a better place yeah. for um, the next generation. I think that is um, where that hope comes from is that, yeah, we, the world can seem like a really dark place, especially to people who suffer with depression and mental health issues. And like this kind of work to me is a little bit of, you know, it's selfish in a way because it, to me, proves that um, I'm capable of making a little dent in the darkness and that, you know, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. I saw a tweet on the topic of kids where somebody, you know, and and it 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 touched me. Uh, somebody had said that they they haven't had the conversation about racism with their kid yet, mm -hmm. you know? Um, they're white kid like they haven't had mm -hmm. that conversation they don't have to but they're colorblind right that type of thing mm -hmm. and I saw the response to that tweet was yeah my black kid doesn't have that privilege that's the yeah. whole you know and I was like damn it oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. I have to have this talk with my you know my son who's my stepson but he's my son he's dark like he's very dark mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. I don't know I can't think of like who's dark like in pop culture That maybe that's the problem right like but he's He's really dark and and my daughter you know is not she's like my color mm -hmm. and i've had that conversation with my son but not with her yet you know and mm -hmm. I, I don't want to do it in a way that I, I i need to have that conversation so people that are listening to this help me out here like what are some best best practices best tips to have this conversation with my with my peach skin daughter that's her word She's the color peach. That's what it says on the crayon when she colors. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's that's a tough one. I need to take that responsibility to do it because I certainly don't want her othering anybody. And that is something to be ashamed of. And it's also indicative of, of the leadership around her. She's a reflection of, of me and her mom, you know. So seeing that tweet, I was like, oh, snap, I need to I need to figure that one out. I do. I, I, I do. I do that. There is a privilege that blankets her in in that why sh why should she be why why should she not have that conversation why should she be opt out like that's mm -hmm. that's the privilege for sure i want to be respectful of your time how are you with time right now i'm good i mean just whatever your normal length is i okay. don't want to just like talk through it but okay, i cool. mean yeah, yeah yeah well i just want to be respectful you know um some people they got the one hour and i i want to want to abide that um, what are you working on right now? I know you have your, your hand in different pots at all time. I look at you as a social lubricator people you can just like get into any room and talk with anybody. And, and, uh, I just think that's so cool. I've seen you out in the wild and I'm like, I wish I had this confidence. So what do you, what do you, what are you up to? What do you, what are your schemes? Yeah, I mean, um, right now I'm doing a really big pivot with my personal brand. I have a website and, you know, a small following on uh, Instagram of a couple thousand where um, I have in the past been like really vocal about my experiences with like mental health and um, chronic illness and some of the things that um, I was going through as I was going through them. But I think I've like, kind of sheltered the smart girl side of me 
that makes sense. It's like, um, I had this voice playing in my head that if I started being too smart online, people would leave the room. And that's something that, um, honestly, some of the like black public academics have really like affirmed that needed me to like do more long form essays and to be more of a public academic. Rachel Cargill is a black writer and public academic that comes to mind where like her entire platform is just like basically democratizing the extension of knowledge to people. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I think there are a lot of resources for people to learn about the things that are affecting our world. And so for me in the next couple of months, I'm gonna try and kind of divest myself from more of the typical influencer um, bits, you know, like I like makeup, I like working out, I like being a woman. Um, I don't really think that as a brand, that's what I wanna speak to anymore. Um, I think in some ways I've really grown past that. And, you know, I accept that, you know, I don't hate the time that I spent invested in that and I don't hate that you know, a lot of people who follow me followed me because of that. Um, but yeah, I want to make myself more of like a public intellectual. That's really what I'm focusing on right now is, um, you know, educating myself and starting to like get more comfortable with promoting my work. Like you said, like promoting what, what, can my I, what can I do to help? Like what can a friend do to help you? Yeah, I mean, just share the work that I'm doing. You know, if you agree with it, if you think that it's, you know, something that people that, you know, will enjoy reading or, um, you know, I want to do some like videos and um, I really like YouTube essays. I think that YouTube like essays are my favorite genre of videos on YouTube. Like I have a yeah. playlist. You should check it out. It's called Homework by Knives Monroe. Just type that in YouTube and you'll okay. see 150 video playlists of like, you know, I'll download it before I go on a plane and I'll just listen to it. And video essays, I get so excited about it because if I could do it, I would. Like I've tried. Mm -hmm. I don't have the discipline to write a thousand words on something. And like, I, ne I don't also don't have the education if I'm being honest. Like I didn't go to college and like learn how to format an essay and I could learn, mm -hmm. but I don't have the discipline to do that. But if I could, like, I just think that's, I, I pay for YouTube premium so I don't have to hear any ads, but more importantly, so I can turn my phone off and listen to something yeah. while, it, while it plays in the background. You have to pay extra for that YouTube. But if you did video essays, oh my gosh, that would be so exciting. That would be really exciting. And I also think that it's kind of, it's not like a competitive space. There's like yeah. five to 10 really, really big, big um, platforms. People, brands channels that do that um like the take are you familiar with the take yeah on youtube yeah. i love everything that they do it's i think it's like two women who do it yeah that's yeah, amazing it, it's two women and then they have like i think a three-person production team and that for Some, me is something like that the best part is like you could do it while you're quarantined you can do it mm -hmm. by yourself essentially you know you're you're an army of one and I would encourage you to do that. I was going to suggest it, but I'm happy you said it first. Yeah, I think I I really am, um, really, really am trying to um, re-teach myself that I have a voice and it is okay for me to use it. I just definitely 
feel like that has always been something where I've gotten in my own way on so many different things like essays and things like that is because I've been like, well, you know, other people are smarter than me. Other people have the ability to do this. And I, the more that I'm like, especially in the film community and I'm around producers and writers who are getting shit done, it's like, they're just the people who do it. You know, it's not even that they are like, they don't have a superpower. There's people that do it and I'm capable of being the person that does it, you know? And so that to me, um, that's, something I've been like really meditating on and trying to like incorporate into my daily um, life is that you are a person who can do this. You are a person that does it, you know, and I, that's a really big step for me. So. Yeah. What are some like obstacles or hurdles? Let's just leave. Cause I think it's a confidence game. I think it's a self-esteem mm -hmm. game. If you have self-esteem coming out your butt, then there probably isn't really an obstacle maybe mm -hmm. um, that you would identify as an obstacle. But minus that, what what are some maybe practical or technological um, things that are impeding you from maximizing um, who you really want to be? Like, you know, what how you want to represent yourself? Yeah, I think, um a lot of it was just like te technical know-how for sure. Like even just setting this up for the meeting today, yeah. it's like in theory I could do all of it, but like actually doing it, I hate getting things wrong. Um, and so, you know, I think now that I have a little bit more of a setup, it's getting a camera again, my camera, that I had before is gone. And so, um, you know, getting a camera again, kind of getting that front end equipment, um, was in the way I feel a little bit better about that um I can edit but I hate editing and so that was something that was like preventing me from doing it but I, um I think I love editing okay well. so you have a friend a partner someone that you know <laughs> I mean I love it man um I'll send you something that was kind of like video essay-esque mm -hmm. like one thing that people get mixed up about me is I'm pretty good at like turn on the camera and rant. I'm pretty good at that. Yeah. But when I want to say something specific, like I script it out and mm -hmm. I perform it, you know, and I don't mm -hmm. think you'd ever tell. I don't think you'd ever tell. And a lot of YouTubers do actually script out their content, you know? Um, yeah. But then there's the, the editing part and that's really where stuff gets made. I found when I'm repeating myself, I just cut it out. You yeah. Know? So something, cause yeah. I'm, I'm, I like to, I say the same thing three different ways, but it's just pick one knives, you know? So um, editing is like the final draft of whatever it is, the piece, you know? Um, yeah. So I find that's where you really get to put the finishing touches on the, whatever it is you're sculpting, the words. Um, so yeah. if you don't like that, that part of thing, that's when, as you know, uh, the collaboration comes in. Cause there's a lot of stuff yeah. I don't like to do, like acting. I can't, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm not for that, you know. I don't even like being an on-screen persona. I I forget that <laughs> I am though. Um for my work, I'll do voiceover on some projects and I'm like, I don't I'm not Alan Rickman, like why am I doing this? <laughs> no, you have such a soothing voice. <laughs> no, I don't have the velvety the velvety tones of of a Morgan Freeman or something, but um Yeah. But I'm no, like kind of like what you said, like we just do it, like I just I'll figure it out later. I've always thought um you know, for me, like being a filmmaker, I just wanted to be this guy, the guy that's like this, mm -hmm. put the cactus right here. I want to be the the bourgeois director that tells people what to do, what to wear, mm -hmm. how to say the thing. 
but I found that you can just live in La La Land and maybe that'll happen one day. But the the only way I actually got shit done was by buying a camera, by pirating some video editing software that I didn't <laughs> want to pay $300 yeah. for. I have a video on YouTube called How to Pirate Bay um, and so forth, like hacking my way into into doing stuff. Like what's, what's weird is um, the feedback loop, you know, like when you put stuff mm -hmm. out there, that's how you grow. That's how you know what people like. Like I've spent eight grand on a movie that nobody saw and I've spent no money on a podcast and people, that's the thing that they love the most. It's like, what? I don't even count this as, as anything real, you know, but what? you let the that's market so decide, you let the people tell you knives, bring Maddie back on again. That's, that's where that shit is at. And it's like, we've been going for an hour 40. I mean, that's a movie. That's a movie right yeah. there, you know? Yeah. And so I'm, I've had to unlearn, like you said, um, a lot of things. And that's like the, the old world tactics don't necessarily serve me when I want, they don't match my ambitions. Like sometimes that means yeah. getting in the dirt and being the ca the guy that does the catering, that casts, that edits, mm -hmm. that writes, the, that does everything. And I've seen you wear all the hats. Yeah. You know, it's it's part of it. It's part of it for sure. And uh, you, you never know what's going to be the thing that that connects with people, though. Like that's what we yeah. ultimately want to do. Yeah. No. And like with St. Martha's, I for those that don't know, I put together a little short film that I was like hoping to turn into a series. But that was just something that I could not get the energy behind, even though I thought it was really great. And that just knocked me on my ass. Um, and five, I was like, five you know years what? from now, that could be a different story. Yeah. Right. Like it took Scorsese 30 years to make like his last movie or whatever. So yeah, yeah this, you know, this, this that's definitely it. something that like, I think you have to learn in order to like continue making things is that if it is something that you are proud of, that you liked doing, that you put a lot of time and thought into that sometimes you just have to be able to like drop it and walk on to the next project. And for me, that was like probably the hardest part of like moving on from the end of last year and like deciding, okay, what's next for me? was well if i didn't do this perfectly that means i'm gonna fail at everything else mm. and now i just like i think that um you know honestly being in quarantine has given me a lot of time with myself where i'm like you know what i i can do this you know i can do this and if I, somebody was paying me to do it i wouldn't even be a question you know like yeah. if some if i could immediately monetize it like whenever i had clients for my production company if they were paying me money an hour I wasn't in question. I could edit for 16 hours straight, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's just like valuing yourself almost as your own client yep. um, and investing in your future and being like, you know what? Um, maybe this gets, maybe this is an immediate hit. Maybe it's not, but like the process is important too. And that for me is um, a constant thing I'm learning is like the process of, learning how to do something or putting yourself out there is really important too. And I think that is just something the older I get, the more I like learn it like internally, but externally acting it out has been, um, yeah, it's been a roadblock for me for sure. Do you hate it when people, cause I'm about to do it. Do you hate it when people say, Maddie, you're so young, you know, you have so much 
like to look forward to you haven't even hit your prime yet and yeah. like don't worry like you're so young like does that feel condescending does it feel like that doesn't mean i'm dumb like you know like when i was 24 yeah. i felt so old but also you couldn't tell me that i wasn't experienced enough or whatever mm -hmm. like i thought i knew everything at 24 i was such a prick but i'm not saying you are but yeah, do, do no. you kind of feel like condescended to or something when someone says that i'm curious i think a year ago i would have like when i went to southwest uh last year and i was in the room with these filmmakers that were like really accomplished and they were like you're so young you can do anything that was like yeah oh a knife to the chest i'm like no i'm such an old soul trust me i'm like yeah. so wise and stuff but i think <laughs> the more you learn the more you realize you have so much more to learn mm -hmm. i think like humility and accepting that your knowledge is limited is something that comes with age so like i love the experience of getting older every year that i've like gotten older has been a better year than the last one for me so like i love the experience of getting older and i love the idea that there's still a lot of time left for me so like for yeah. me yeah i definitely have like the old habit that wants to be like oh my gosh you're 26 i can't believe how old you are but for like the other part of me it's like you're gonna be alive anyway so just do it you know yeah. jackie benson is an austin uh musician she said that at a conference one time and i was like yes you're gonna be alive so just freaking do it you know and yeah. so i think for me like yeah it's a i when i turned 18 I literally, the day I turned 18, I was so depressed I couldn't get out of bed because I realized I would never be a child star. Like, that was my mentality. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> you know? no, I get that. I was like, I'm never going to be Taylor Swift, you know? like It's so much, it's so much pressure to heart. put on yourself. Like, the Beatles did their entire discography before they were 30. Yeah. So when I turned 30, I was like, I thought I was going to be as big as the Beatles. What happened? Yeah, yeah, it is. And as a society, we definitely have this obsession with youth. So like we yeah. highlight the people that have succeeded at a young age. We have a hard time like reckoning with people who are like in their 40s when they hit their prime. Like yeah. those aren't the same kinds of people. They get the same kinds of attention, um, you know. And so I've had to actively go out of my way to find people that I like think of as role models that are, you know, a lot older that started when I'm starting that, yep. you know, laid that kind of path for me where I can see it for myself, you know? Yeah. I always wanted that. They're hard to find. Like I've been in Austin. I mean, I moved here for the culture, for the scene mm -hmm. and, and I still don't feel uh, inoculated, like in the scene, especially right now it's weird, but I don't yeah. know if I need to join AFI or what, but I'm still trying to find my tribe and my people and it's hard. But when I was younger, I was the guy that that ate the berries. And if they were poison, well then it, at least people knew the hard way. No, knives ate the berries, so he knows. <laughs> or I was the guy that, you know, jumped in the canal and was like, this is no good. Don't do it. <laughs> um, same thing with, you know, I was the first person in my hometown to to make a movie to make a trailer to the, the presentation of of bringing other filmmakers trailers before the movie experience that felt like a well, even more legitimate movie experience to sell out a theater to be in the newspaper like you know i was like the first one from my hometown to do it on the diy level but i didn't mm -hmm. have a silhouette to base my career off of i, I didn't have the template and I would have killed for a father, an older brother, 
mm-hmm. you know, a neighbor that kind of like had the records that I could be like, teach me. I, I unfortunately, I had to be the, t- the taste maker, you know, um, mm-hmm. not yeah. the other way around. Like I, I very much so value the 45 year old comedian who's been mm-hmm. doing, who's been on the road for 20 years or the blues musician who's been in 30 bands, mm-hmm. you know, but can play, can play music in their sleep versus the, I like the garage band. I think we romanticize the young blood, like for yeah. sure. I, I think about that in, in acting, like, um, I forgot who was it. Me and my friends have this joke and that Dakota Fanning was like, the girl and then chloe grace moretz like ran her over by you know with a car (laughs) took her career and now it's like and then it was um jennifer lawrence and it's always like and now it's margot robbie and there's going to be someone else as soon as an actress turns 25 like she's like an old avocado it's just so fucked up i think we we put young blood like on a pedestal but truly you know i look at like emma stone's career like mm-hmm. she was not a flash in the pan. Like she, she's still a very interesting actress, and I buy into whatever it is she's doing. Um, that longevity, like that's the stuff that I'm really after. The the filmmaker who's on his twelfth movie um, yeah. ver- versus, you know, the the up and comer. Like I I I understand why that gets why it has like why it's extra shiny, why mm-hmm. it sparkles. Like it you know to people at us at, at the level of our career. But if I could learn from like the old masters, I would, man. I just, any chance I get, I, I, I want to hear the stories. I like going on road with people who have 10 times more experience than me. That's when you, That's, yeah. you, you learn real tangible things that you can take with you that can save you a decade. So you let me know yeah. if you, if you, if you know these people, man, cause, uh, <laughs> Yeah, being, being a young buck like it's it there's you know you're you have your lack of experience like working against you in a lot of ways but you have the audacity that people that are in their late 30s wish they had you know like mm-hmm. i wish i could not give a shit how do you not give a fuck like that's what people are trying to unlearn you know um yeah i, I don't know if you can relate to that mrs old soul yeah i mean i do i I was like on the track for so long. I get that mentality, you know, like I definitely get that um, idea that this is your life is supposed to look this way. Otherwise you're not successful yet. You know, like that to me makes sense because we like, as a society, we love comeback kid stories. We love people who break through. We have, we love that satisfaction of being like, well, I saw her in her very first movie and she was, you know, nothing then. And now she's this now. So like, we definitely have this like, um, idea where we like romanticize specific points in people's careers versus like what they're making and the work they're producing. And like, I was really, um, the first time I went to an acting class, uh, I had a teacher, his name is Craig Nye. He's out of here in um, Austin. He was like, if you like doing anything else, like go do that. Because <laughs> this yep. is a long game. It is little gratification. I agree um, with this. You, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I tell that to people all the time. I'm like, if, like, if I could be an engineer, I would be an engineer, dude. I would have gone back and got my degree as an engineer. Um, yeah because it is like so much more stable 
there's just so many benefits to it and then i would also like play in a band on the side or whatever you know um but that's not the like path that life handed me you know and so i'm like making a life out of the things that like i really value and i really enjoy and so i think it's like being able to not take yourself super seriously all the time which is a really hard thing for me to do and just be like if this was somebody else would i be like on them about being at this point in their life you know i'm really lucky zach my husband gives me like the feedback all the time of like but you did this this and this and in my head i hadn't even like registered those things as accomplishments Mm -hmm. you know they were just like things i was supposed to do you know and so i definitely think that like valuing the like ability to age as a person and to like constantly learn as a person and to take every day as an opportunity to like invest in the things that don't necessarily make you happy because like I don't really have like a love affair with the idea of like you should be happy all of the time because I think that sometimes like things are hard and you should like acknowledge that and like work through that um but the things that make you grow as a person like if you're investing in that then you're moving in the right direction you know and i think the next step is then like doing something about that person you're growing into and for me that's like where i'm at in life and i accept that i own that and i like i'm okay with that you know i'm okay that i don't know exactly what that looks like but i'm trying you know absolutely uh i'm a big tony robbins guy and he has this quote happily achieve as opposed to achieve to be happy you know and i like the (laughs) verb of like happily like you should happily cook and happily mow the lawn and happily like just putting that putting that word before certain tasks change your behavior and change your attitude towards it um do you have i'm curious is there an actress or an author or somebody out there who you who you look at as a a blueprint or like maybe some sort of <clears throat> um, model like in a test subject sense that you want to um, have like the career of and I, I'll just say for me growing up like it was filmmakers and then now I live we live in this 2020 world where filmmaking is not the only game in town like now there's yeah. video essayists on YouTube and mm-hmm. so on um there's way different kinds there's more jobs essentially like more it's it's Mm -hmm. a gamut it's a spectrum now and so i don't necessarily i have to have new heroes and i don't know who they are to to be like i want this person's type of career um do do you have any person like that yeah definitely i mean i so like being as isolated as i was in the really um extreme environment of my church growing up I did not have role models because all of the women who were around me were not people I wanted to be and um so like finding role models as an adult was something that was like I don't know like really refreshing to my life it like really helps me put my life in perspective um one of them is Jonathan Van Ness he's from Queer Eye do you know him is he the dude with long hair yeah 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. so i love him because he's a person that does all sorts of things um like before he did queer eye he did gay of thrones which was just him talking about game of thrones which is really funny um you know and he just he does hair and he's worked really hard at doing hair he has if you um 
He's Martha if, Stewart's friend. Yeah. If yeah. you're friends, if you're a fan of him reading his autobiography, it was really great because he's a person who's been like shaped by pain and his compassion and who he is as a person um, has been shaped by pain and effort. Um, but you know, he does Queer Eye. He does, he has a stand up tour going. He has a podcast called Curious with JVN where he just has experts that come in and like explain things to him. And, um, you know, I think that curiosity in him as a person um, combined with a really great work ethic where like whenever the opportunity to do things comes up, he's just like, well, does this like fit with who I am as a person? Would I enjoy it? Then the answer is yes that is like the energy I want to take into my career, you know? And yeah. like, not only does he change lives through what he does with Queer Eye, he like creates important messages for the world through his platform. Um, he uses who he is as a person to help educate people, but he's fun, you know? Like people identify him as being a fun, like, you know, queer guy. And mm -hmm. that to me is like, I love people who are not just one thing, they are, all of the things that they are at the same time you know they don't feel like they have to like jump into a niche and run all the way with it they can be yeah. themselves in whatever expression that looks like that's one thing i kind of envy about like i wish i was not really i'm pretty stoked with my life but i reflect <laughs> on thinking about what does a freshman in high school daydream about now? Probably they want to be a youtuber or something yeah. oh i'm gonna keep talking but my camera is gonna die one sec Okay. But we're still going, and I think you might go full screen, if anything. Um, but I, I constantly think, like, man, like, if I was a freshman in high school right now, I probably, I would probably be that guy that get a tattoo on his face or something. Like, <laughs> the times have changed so much. Um, not that that's a bad thing, but it's, like, all I knew as a kid was filmmaking, and now... Like, I don't know, would I, would I want to be a, a, a Casey Neistat or something, like, today? I, I don't know. Um, who are like the heroes? Like, what are the jobs? Like, it's just so vast. Like, I don't want to be a Logan Paul. You know, I don't want to be a, yeah. I, I guess his equivalent back in my day was like a Bam Margera or something. Like, I didn't want to be that. But I knew that I had a lot of fun with a camera in my hand. I knew that I liked editing. Say, like, I filmed um, a mixer or a party and like, giving people kind of like this yearbook, so to speak of like, here's yeah. this thing of to remember that night, like, that was kind of like my legacy in a way, but how do you monetize that? Like, how is that? What's the job title? You know, um, mm -hmm. the, the position that I have right now in my work was created for me, you know, like they were like, they saw what I did, even though I couldn't mm -hmm. define what I did. And they're like, yeah, we want you to do all the things that you do, but it wasn't a position. And so yeah, I got lucky dope. in that regard, but deep down inside I'm like but I'm a filmmaker though I want to make mm -hmm. movies and then you know I saw a Facebook post someone was like if you could make if you could spend ten thousand dollars on a movie what would that movie be mm -hmm. and my witty smart ass response was more you know for me the question should be can you even make ten thousand dollars from a movie mm -hmm. how do you do that teach me how to sell x amount of e-tickets or is the movie on twitch or how do we do mm -hmm. that like the space just changed like it's been a different world and so i'm trying to collect you know these sort of uh parasocial relationships with uh, youtubers instagram people podcasters whatever i'm trying to collect these figures 
to model myself after. And I'm glad that you mentioned the, the dude from Queer Eye because it sounds like it's more like a holistic sort of approach or like a more of a kind of like how, how he swims through his day. It's more like an, a, a lifestyle, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I like that. I think I think as a man, we we look at somebody's results and we're like, oh, I have to buy the shoes and I need to have the car and I need to I need to so I can have those results. But yeah you grow up and you realize, no, this person lives this way. He behaves this way. You can't purchase something that's going to give you those results. Like we, we often conflate those things and it's not like that. And I had to learn that the hard way with, with movie making, you know, um, I just don't, this goes to the existential stuff from earlier. If you have the time to, to get into it, like Mm -hmm. I have this strange relationship with filmmaking and making movies like i i kind of it's I've, I've i've told people when i was younger filmmaking was and the passion rather the passion mm-hmm. for for filmmaking was this oil that that was so plentiful it came from the ground it would come out of the ground and mm-hmm. now if i want to tap into that passion i got to dig miles miles deep to like find the well and it didn't used to be that hard and i don't i don't know why it is um or rather i didn't know why and the verdict i've came to is i think i think you can't be satisfied and you can't be comfortable with what you've done and where you are you have to humble yourself with uh the difficulty that it that is your life like how diff you have to remember your losses essentially like Mm -hmm. and i had to remind myself that i think i got i think i forgot who i was Mm -hmm. and because you think oh i've changed because my lifestyle is different or my Mm -hmm. and the truth is i think the most successful people never let it go and feel Mm -hmm. like i can always i'm always three decisions away from being back at the trailer or something whatever Mm -hmm. their bottom is. And so um, if you could take anything from my um, quandary, it's you're going to get momentum and then you're gonna get into, you're gonna find a deal, you're gonna find your people, you're gonna be happy, you're gonna go home at three in the morning and be like, my life is dope. You're gonna have that moment. And I would ask you if you could just to remember Knives saying, yeah, but remember in your rear view mirror, that you were bedridden for X amount of months Mm -hmm. and you didn't, don't forget that. I mean, how could you Maddie? Like how, (laughs) how actually could you, but people, people just become, people can change. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they they forget where they come from and they become like bougie or something, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what happened to me. If I'm being honest, it's hard for me to even say out loud, like on a public forum, but I think I, got complacent and i was like just going through the motions and that's that's not fun you know i have to i have to like risk something i have to die for something i have to it's the it's the pursuit of whatever the pursuit Mm -hmm. of x like and that's where i find my purpose you know um is this any way relatable (laughs) yeah no it definitely is i mean i one thing that I'm really grateful for the experience I'm really grateful for is whenever I was in outpatient group therapy, 
I was the youngest person in there by like 20 years, like Mm. easily 20 years. You know, all of these people had had mental breakdowns at this like really late stage of their life or not late stage. I was 21 of everything felt late, but you know, they were in their fifties, sixties and um, they had built an entire life around what other people wanted them to be and not who they are. And it just wasn't long-term sustainable. It, you know, they were in survival mode their entire life. Um, they had kids or whatever to provide for. And the instant that life let up a little bit, it broke them because they had the room to acknowledge that the life around them was somebody else's. It was built for somebody who they were not. And for me, as a 22, 23-year-old at the time, I just remember thinking, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't want to wake up at 45 and realize that who I became was because somebody else wanted that for me, you know? And um, I'm really intentional about that and what I do. Like, I won't even post on Instagram or on Facebook if I think it's because somebody else needs to hear it or if it's for somebody else, or if it like fits in with this idea of what mm-hmm. somebody else thinks of me, you know? Um, I don't think I'll ever, I don't think I'll have the energy in my life to always take it to that extreme, but yeah, I like, when I think about the people I saw and the way that life had beat them up, and a lot of these people were like privileged people, you know, they were people um, who had built huge companies who had you know um what the world would call success yeah uh, the majority of them you know there were some people who life had just like really beat up on and who had like uh really like had always kind of struggled with depression and you know those kinds of things too um but the people who like kind of haunt me are you know the people who like there's this one guy I won't give names or anything but he um he had two daughters that had graduated from or that were about to graduate from high school they were twins and um they got you know a letter back from the college that said like your tuition check bounced you know your tuition it's not secured and he had been using the family savings they lived in highland park which is a really nice area of dallas like Mm. one of the homes there is like minimum three million dollars they had this lifestyle they had built around them he had been living off of their savings for two years and he was so afraid to tell the people in his life his truth and like what was happening that he had rather lived the lie until the money ran out you know and so Mm -hmm. he obviously had this mental break and he was in the room with me wow and you know, he looked at me and he was like, you have the opportunity to build a life that not only will you be proud of, but you'll be glad you did, you know? And that was, it was humbling. Honestly, like it was one of the more humbling things in my life was to be in that room with these people who have been really, really hurt by life. And every single one of them looked at me and was like, you are not a failure. You are somebody who life forced you into this frame of mind early. And honestly, like that's kind of a blessing. And Mm -hmm. 
I do think of it that way. I do think of it as something I'm really lucky to have experienced is that I know what it looks like when you think that you're going to be okay with compromising your values a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time. It's like, it, it doesn't stop. You know, it doesn't, you think it will, but it just doesn't, you know? And so, yeah, that was like such a specific experience to go through, but one that's like really informed who I am. It kind of fucked me up for a while, honestly. Like, you know, like that's a lot of responsibility to put on a 22 year old who doesn't really understand what she wants from life. Like every decision that I made for the next couple of years, I'm like, is this really what I want forever? You know? And like, so I, what's interesting is like, you didn't ask for that. You know, Mm -mm. there are people who put on a uniform and then they go fight for our country. They're 18 years old and they see things they could have never fathomed, but they signed up for that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you, I'm sure you've heard this a billion times, you know, it's such a lack of a better phrase, but we're, we're dealt a shitty hand. Mm-hmm. And um, this wasn't your choice. You didn't ask for this, you know, and, and what you're saying, like about the story of that guy pride you know what i mean like mm-hmm. just to save face like I, I do think about how the lengths people will go to to protect their um, self-image or something you know i've done something n- definitely not that gnarly but when mm-hmm. i'm depressed and i'm acting out mm-hmm. um i operate from it's a self-preservation sort of place yep. and it's yeah it's not um something to be proud of you know it's it's uh mm-hmm. It's, I, I, you have to reckon with that shame. Um, so that's a powerful lesson to learn at, at the right time. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's the death of a thousand cuts. If you, if you, if you just accept it over and over and over again, over again, mm-hmm. I got hiccups, sorry. Um, but no, I, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it sounds like something like that you'll never forget. So Basically, mm-hmm. when you become rich and famous and you accept your Academy Award, you know, hopefully you just remember that, you know, health is something that we can't take for granted and so on. Yeah. I know it sounds super cheesy, but I think like the most successful down to earth, humble people that not just have a lot of money in their bank account, but the ones who carry your bags, mm-hmm. you know, the ones who invite you into their home and like treat you like an equal and listen to you like the really that's success like the really wealthy like emotionally wealthy people i just think they're really humble and mm-hmm. and uh they they keep their worst days with them wherever mm-hmm. they go and like that's something that i just it recently took and it soaked in with me and i and i, I i'm not too good for that i'm not too good to remember um the homeless times and the sleepless nights and the blah blah blahs like they're right there around the corner man like Mm -hmm. they really are and then when you're operating from that place um you're excited for life you're excited for a project or something i used to put um, yeah what are your and this will be one of my last questions because like like i said i want to be respectful of your time and i the truth is i mean if i don't put an end to this we're gonna talk all day um (laughs) what what are your thoughts on like the whole writing ethos of killing your darlings like are you good at that or do you feel like so precious about your material 
I am really lucky that honestly, if I sit down and write, I can write something, you know? Um, you are lucky. Uh, yeah. For me, writing and storytelling is like part of who I am. It's it, like breathing I, for you? Sorry? Is it like breathing, like inhale, exhaling for you? Really, honestly, yeah. I That's mean, epic. That's awesome. That's your mutant power, just so you know. That's what I meant by the um the oil metaphor that i use like i could yeah. just i used to have like that skill on tap and now mm -hmm. it's like i gotta get warmed up i gotta stretch like you know i'm just so tired and all that you know how it is but if if you have that ability like you gotta make hay while the sun is shining you gotta strike while the iron is hot and all those fucking metaphors and similes and <laughs> go all in on that because i can tell you like that shit is magic yeah i mean it's it's it is a discipline you know i do make myself sit down and write every single day so in that way i think the like the storytelling um is an important natural ability but like making yourself write is something that is something you still have to do and you have to focus on you know yes. um so i i do i i do think that um there are some times whenever you love something a lot like there have been screenplays and stuff that I've really loved um, and I've gotten done with them and having to move on from them and um, understanding that like I might be the only person who ever loves this is really hard because you like you love them like yeah. I don't always love my characters because you know I I think that sometimes it's okay to write unlovable characters actually I love unlovable characters mm -hmm. that um, operate out of kind of like brokenness but not as like straw men um but yeah i i do think that sometimes the ability to say that this served me this was something that helped me process through whatever was going on in life and it's okay that this didn't make me like i didn't get rewarded for this i didn't do anything else it's like if you love something so much like you love filmmaking sometimes it's just about doing it you know and i think Absolutely. that if people really want to be writers and really want to work as writers they have to be fulfilled by the act of it and be okay with walking away from it mm. if it's not going to serve them anymore you know mm. wow that's a very mature old soul response to that <laughs> you really are old soul Maddie, you know, uh, not every idea is the best idea and that's course. okay i think we have to normalize the reality that most people write one hit and that's okay like mm -hmm. that's fine you know and other things are going to serve different purposes um but as long as you are staying in it as long as you're creating as long as you are like not giving up on that part of yourself however it needs to be expressed at the time like you're honoring your uh, ability, you're honoring your creativity and that, you know, that's all you can do. Sometimes it's going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be like really, really hard, but um, yeah, I, I guess it's just a leftover from my days of faith, but like, I really do. I have faith that whenever you're creating and you're honoring who you are as a person, like the right things are going to come and you know, they, they might not look like, exactly what you wanted it to but they'll come absolutely well said maddie i was so 
ecstatic that you reached out to me and you wanted to do this. I was like, what is it? What's the special occasion? What did I do? I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta do that. I gotta keep that up, whatever that was. But um, it made me really happy and I'm happy that we were able to do this and that it was an epic one, you know? Um, my, I don't do interviews, I have chats with people, but it's rare that they get to go uh, over two hours, you know? I would love them if they all did, you know? And so um, the fact that we were able to do this and social distance and, it just worked out so well. And um, I'm a big fan of you. I found you on Instagram. I just saw how prolific you were. I saw your website and was like, oh my God, this chick is, she's just, she's just putting in the deposits. She's doing the work, wow. And then I met you and I was like, oh, and she's humble about it. Damn, like what can't she do? I get jealous of people that wear all the hats, that can write, that can draw, that can act, that can speak, that, are confident. I'm like, why do they have this? And I don't, you know, but it's something about you. I just knew this chick is going to do amazing things. And I say chick, you know, cause you're a friend, you're a friend of mine, yeah. you know, and, and, <laughs> I, and, and, that. and, and I, I call my daughter a chick. I'm like, I love this chick, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. that's what I mean. Uh, of course, but we're, we're mutual fans. Yeah. We're mutual fans. I, I'm a big fan of you too. I like Okay, you're gonna make me cringe. You're gonna make me you. cringe. Don't. No. 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 I just. Uh, <laughs> I, it's the, the love is mutual. Then. Um. Just for the listeners who who did make it this far, where can people find your work? How can they appreciate you? And 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 um. Where can they find you on the internet? Yeah. So everything that I'm doing now is under my invalidlife.com. Um. So it's I N V A L I D. Uh, it's a wordplay on invalid. So my invalid life. Um, I do production. I do commercial production. I do screenwriting. I do, um, you know, I have a really big background in marketing and commercial content. So, you know, if your gig seems like a good fit for me or someone, you know, share me. I'd love to be monetizing this knowledge and work as much as I can. And yeah, I mean, especially with the essays and stuff I'm writing on right now. Um, if you feel like they're uh, maybe going to help open up a conversation with your family to talk about anti-racism specifically. Um, share them, plagiarize them. I don't care. Just, you know, make sure that um, you guys are talking about this. I'm really glad that we got to talk about it. Me too. I appreciate you so much. And uh, I look forward to the next time that we do this, Maddie. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for coming on.